I'm Pastor Michael Ansman, and this is the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. I'd like to welcome you and to thank you for listening to our Sunday morning sermons. I hope that they're a blessing to you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. This morning, we're going to be focusing on the text from the book of Acts, chapter 26, verses 9 through 21, which is the story of the conversion of St. Paul. The conversion of St. Paul. A few years ago, I went to South Africa for a joyous occasion. My sister uh, got married, and I was able to fly over and be, be there for it. Not only did she get married, but she married a, a friend of mine that uh, I had become close with when I was doing my studies over there at Bible College. And uh, we would work out together every morning for, for a good year or so, um, and we became friends that way. And um, I, was, I was happy to have him in our family. And so I was traveling with a small group of, of, uh, of people, her, her, some of her bridesmaids, who were also flying over for the wedding. And we found ourselves in Madrid for a layover, for a day. So it was a good, long layover. So we decided, we're in Spain, we're in Madrid, let's check this city out. And if you ever get a chance, even if it's just a layover, go to Madrid, it's beautiful. So before we went, you know, we're a bunch of American tourists, we had to make sure we had money. So what we did was we went to, they had like little kiosks and banks there in the airport. So after we made sure our, our luggage was taken care of, we passed through customs, all that stuff, we went to the exchange booth. And so I said, here's, I took out some dollars and I said, hey, I need some, some money. So I gave them the dollars, they checked on the conversion board, and then they gave me the equivalent amount of those dollars in euros. So my money changed hands it was converted, and I was given something else. I gave them dollars, they took those dollars, and then they gave me back euros. And I repeated this process when I went to South Africa for South African RAND. Conversion. Financial, monetary conversion. When I was a younger, a younger man, like many others, I would occasionally party a little too hard and... Uh, Occasionally drink too much. And uh, how do you think I felt the next morning when I did that? Not great. Not great. And more than a few times I said, I, ha I woke up with the realization that I had drunk too much the night before. And I said to myself, I am never drinking that much again. I would have liked to have kept that. I would have liked that realization to have played itself out more consistently. But how do you think I did with that statement? Not well. <laughs> Not well. I had made a decision. I had come to a realization about myself that, oh, maybe I was drinking maybe a little too much. But when it came down to it, I didn't always do what I needed to do to make my decision stick, that moment of clarity that I routinely have of something I should do. But there's a profound difference between that moment of, of clarity, that moment of actualization where something clicks into place, and then actually seeing it and experiencing it. And I use these two weird examples, the conversion of finances and my drinking example, to highlight that Christian conversion 
is different. It's different from realizing something about ourselves. It's different than our psychological self-actualization. Conversion is the entire turning of our lives to Christ. It is the reception of his life in exchange for our own. Today, as we commemorate the feast of the conversion of St. Paul, we will see how conversion occurred in his life and the pattern that it lays out for us in our own journey with Christ. And the title of this sermon today will be The Church is for our conversion, not for our self-actualization. The Church is for our conversion. So in this text, as Sandy pointed out, he is giving his testimony before King Agrippa. Now this testimony occurs towards the end of the book of Acts. So we're nearing sort of the end of the description of Paul's journey. And this is a major occurrence in the life of St. Paul. And this story comes at the end of a few chapters of something that can happen. It starts in Jerusalem. It winds up putting him in Caesarea. And then it results in him being shipwrecked in Malta. And then being taken from Malta to Rome, where the book of Acts ends, as he awaits his time to come before uh, the judgment of Caesar. And we know ultimately St. Paul is martyred by Caesar, most likely Nero. And the whole uproar starts in Jerusalem because he goes to the temple during a festival. And the unbelieving Judeans there thought that he brought a Gentile into an area of the temple where Gentiles were not permitted. But this was not true. And this results in an uproar, and they try to kill him. And there's actually a large-scale plot against him. And a bunch of, of the, the, the Jews, unbelieving Jews, say, we are not going to, to eat or drink or cut our hair or anything until he is dead. And there's a story in there where somebody finds out about it and tells Paul. And Paul's with a group of soldiers, and they tell the soldiers. And so they surround him with more soldiers, and they take him away secretly to Caesarea, where he appears before the governor, Felix. Felix keeps Paul because he likes talking to him and because he thinks Paul's going to give him some money to let him go, but Paul doesn't. So Agrippa comes to weigh out Paul's uh, final judgment. So this is a pretty rough go of it for Paul. This is coming at a part of the, You can see how, how maybe something like this would have, would have weighed down upon him. And this is important, this setting, because we hear from his own mouth his testimony of his dramatic conversion from being an enemy of Jesus Christ to one of Jesus Christ's most humble and loyal servants and apostles. In verse 9, he says, I myself was convinced I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And then he lists those things that he did. He put them in prison. He voted, against putting, uh, he voted for putting some of them to death. We actually see this in the book of Acts in the stoning of St. Stephen. And he even tries to get them to blaspheme, it says. Think about that, right? He, he, he is so zealous for what he believes is true and right. He tries to get the burgeoning Christians that he's persecuting to blaspheme. Because if he can do that, then he has something he can use against him in their courts. So he could bring the weight of religious authority against them. He even chases them to foreign cities, which sets up his own conversion story. He's en route to Damascus. And then he recounts this to King Agrippa. He says, I saw at midday, O king, a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. 
And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So you probably note Saul is Paul's Hebrew name and Paul is his Greek name. Just if you're wondering. The risen Christ appears before him and the light outshines the noonday sun. That's bright. He falls off his horse and Christ speaks to him. Why are you persecuting me? Why? As Sandy told us in the reading, goads are sharp pointed sticks meant to be used to drive cattle along as you travel with them somewhere. And Jesus is essentially telling him that in all of your zeal in persecuting the Christians, all of your anger, all of your offense, in actuality, I was using that as a goad to bring you to this point in time, to this place. Everything that St. Paul did in persecuting the church, all of his education prior to that, which he'll later say, I think in the epistle to the Philippians, he says he counts as dung. All of that is the goad that Christ used to get him to that place at that time, kneeling on the ground in the middle of the road, blinded by Christ. All of that zeal, all of that anger was misguided. Saul asks, who is speaking? He recognizes it's a heavenly vision, right? He knows. He has enough presence of mind to know this is divine. The response must have staggered him. I'm Jesus, and you're persecuting me by persecuting my church. Because as we'll talk about in a few weeks, the church is the body of Christ. But you have to wait for that one. The itinerant rabbi executed like a criminal is standing before him in radiant glory that they thought was only due to the God of Israel alone, Yahweh. Jesus gives him a divine mission. I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and as a witness to the things in which you have seen and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Where is Paul standing right now? He's standing before the Gentiles. The story begins earlier. He was standing before the Jews, his own people. And his life is preserved from them. And he talks about it in 2 Corinthians, all of the things that he had suffered for the sake of Christ, the whippings, many times being stoned, his own physical impairments that he asks the Lord three times to take away. But the Lord says to him, my grace is sufficient for you. The risen Christ tasks him was something he will spend the rest of his life fulfilling. He has a purpose. He's going to be sent to his people and to the Gentiles, those who are not the Judeans, those who are not Jews, those from among the nations, so that they too can turn from darkness to light, that they can be freed from the power of Satan's sin and death, so they can be forgiven to serve Christ. He is not disobedient. He is not 
disobedient. He even says, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. This encounter with the risen Christ, him going and preaching the very gospel he came to destroy, he was converted on the road. Something in him was transformed. And the Saul that got up off the road was not the same Saul that went to Damascus. Which is why St. Paul can write, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. So let's talk about our own conversion. The church is for our conversion. It is a tool for our own conversion. The church, for many of us, we were converted to Christ at church. Some of us may mark our conversion to Christ at a revival meeting where somebody gave an altar call and you raised your hand and you said a prayer or something like that. Conversion, though, is not just a one-off occurrence, right? There's an initial uh, conversion. Some of, some of ours are dramatic. Some of yours may have been dramatic. St. Paul, his was dramatic. But upon our conversion to Christ, something old falls away and something new is embraced. Upon our initial conversion, we are baptized into Christ and we're given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this unites us into Christ and his church where the very real life of Christ is given to us, and we are really and truly transformed by the indwelling grace of the Holy Spirit, which we'll go on to say in Romans 8, I believe, this is why we can call God our Father. God our Father. The pattern of our initial conversion is one that we can use as our guide as we learn to regularly convert and to turn our hearts towards God. And being continually converted to Christ is not the guilt-laden altar call from a well-meaning pastor at youth camp, right? Asking you to rededicate your life to Jesus because you acted out on lustful thoughts or you went too far with your girlfriend. Conversion entails the daily, ongoing course corrections as we encounter the risen Christ through his word read, his word preached, and the sacramental life of the church. Conversion consists of confrontation and repentance, as we see in the story of St. Paul. Jesus doesn't just appear as like a regular person and they're like, hey, buddy, you know, maybe you should calm down a little bit. You know, Paul, I mean, I really appreciate your zeal. I love it. I love it. What if you say you took it, you, you keep it at a 10, but maybe, maybe just bring it down to like a 7. That would be great. Okay, thanks. No, that's not what Jesus did. He, 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 did, he appears in his dazzling glory. He confronts St. Paul with the reality of who he is and what St. Paul is doing and what he has done. And this might make us uncomfortable, brothers and sisters, but the church is meant to be a counter world. The church is an embassy of the kingdom of God that stands as a bulwark in the middle of the kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of God is righteousness, joy, and peace. 
and the Holy Spirit. And in this kingdom, we are called to live and to act and to be like we are actually citizens of God's coming but not yet kingdom. That means then for us, brothers and sisters, that the ethics of the kingdom of God are different than the ethics of morality as espoused by the political right or the political left. We are confronted at church with the vision of Christ, the eternal word of God, through the preaching of the word, and the preaching of the word bears our hearts. Like it says in Hebrews, the word of God is like a sharp sword that pierces us. There's nothing, I don't know about you, when I cut my, I cut my thumb one day when I was, I was trying to make a really nice dish for my, me and my wife when we first got married, and I had these, these, uh, these red pepper, sun-dried red peppers or whatever, and I had it on the board, and I was chopping, chopping, chopping. I thought I was chopping real good like a pro until I, I cut across my thumb like that, and I had to go to the urgent care. <laughs> Whoops. That getting fixed hurts. And I feel like sometimes for us, we expect that the preaching and the hearing and the reception of the word of God is not going to sometimes pierce our hearts. But that's what it's supposed to do. We're confronted with who we are and who Christ is, and we are called to be transformed. And we dare not reduce that to mere social action or spewing out platitudes. When we're confronted we are then challenged and drawn to repentance. Repentance is not just being sorry. It's not just feeling guilty. And in fact, many places and many churches will tell you that you don't have to feel guilty about anything because you're all good the way you are. But I digress because we focused on that already last week. Some of you are like, thank God. We're confronted with the risen Christ when we approach the altar where the broken body and blood of Christ are represented to us and given to us to feast upon. As Jesus said, if we do not, then we do not have life in us. We are, we are confronted by the risen Christ when we neglect Christian works of charity for one another and for others. We must never forget Jesus saw persecution of his church as persecution against him. And we saw from the parable of the, of the sheep and the goats that he has the same point of view towards the works of charity that we as Christians are called to do. Then comes obedience. Like St. Paul, when we are confronted by the risen Christ, we have a decision to make. This is why conversion is both corporate and personal. It's both corporate as a group and personal. We all have a decision to make. Do we follow and obey, or should we ignore and stay blind? And there are many people today, it doesn't matter what denomination you find yourself in, who come to church, but who's, who, who have not been transformed, who have not been converted by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ calls us to live our lives as Christians, counterculturally, and the ethics of following him are going to make everybody angry because following Jesus and converting to him requires the complete and total surrender of our hearts. That is something we do not want to do because it's hard. 
because it means every single one of us, as we are confronted by the Word of God, by the preaching of the Word of God, we don't want to be transformed. We don't want to change. Because every single one of us, regardless of who you are, has the thing that we want to hold on to above all else. The thing Christ is calling us to give up to follow him. This is why conversion, brothers and sisters, after our initial conversion into Christ, is a process because the total conversion of our hearts takes time. Because remember, brothers and sisters, when we are converted, our hearts were dead. They were dead. St. Paul doesn't say in Ephesians, your heart was a little bruised. <laughs> he didn't say, you know, you sprained it. He said, you were dead. and bound to sin and to death. But Christ heals those wounds. He resurrects our hearts, fills them with new life, enabling us to turn to him in love and adoration. We will all get angry here, brothers and sisters, because that means there is no area of our lives that Jesus Christ does not become Lord over. Every area of our life Christ is Lord. And all those things that we think we need or are, they're set in order by Christ, but the journey to that is hard and we're all going to resist. Hence, again, conversion and the church. That is a far cry, brothers and sisters, from self-actualization. And self-actualization, the psychological theory of it anyway, is espoused by people like Maslow and others, is you sort of have this authentic self, right? Kind of deep inside of you. And then as you meet the hierarchy of needs, that becomes more and more manifested, or the, the, the authentic self in you becomes more and more visible as you actualize and are able to become your true authentic self. If you've been online for more than 30 seconds, you'll see that there's a lot of stuff out there about becoming your most authentic self. Usually this involves, you'll see this like in graphics on Facebook. Everybody has the aunt that, that, or, or the, the, the out there friend who posts stuff like this, right? And, and usually it says something like, don't listen to the haters, ignore everything negative, go your own way. Once you do this, then you'll achieve some sort of self-actualization and happiness. And you'll become a, a happier and a better version of you. Christians are not immune to that. There's a Christian version of this too. A few years ago, some friends of mine decided to have some fun involving, uh, we invented these uh, uh, Christian inspirational quotes, these fake Christian inspirational quotes, and we added the hashtags, think about it, your mind is blown, and no limits. We did it for fun just to see what would happen. And it quickly deteriorated into, it was, it was, it was very funny. But one of my favorites was one that I made that it seemed to resonate with everybody, it was, be the you you that you can be. And I was riffing off of a, a, a quote by, I think, Joel Osteen. The secular world can't offer us true conversion. Only the Christian one can. The secular world can only offer us the temptation to give in to our wrongly ordered passions. But, but we see the fulfillment of those passions as the quest for our true and authentic self. Be the you you that you can be. And the church tells us the same thing. But we're not on a journey to become the you you that you can be. 
we're on the journey towards something else. So there's a, a, an author, I'm not going to name him, you don't need to know, it's fine. You, probably, you might know her, but this is the template for actualization slash authenticity. She, this author, divorced her husband, traveled around, had some sort of spiritual, Eastern spiritual awakening without actually becoming a, a believer in any of the religions, just kind of picking and choosing to have a spiritual awakening, remarries, then divorced her husband to remarry somebody else who was her best friend who had received a cancer diagnosis, who sadly passed away. Divorce, travel, spiritual awakening, remarriage, divorce, remarriage. The quest for the authentic self, perfectly demonstrated. This is not the pattern of the cross. The Book of Common Prayer from 2019 has a, has a collect, which is a prayer, which, which reads like this, and it stuck out of my mind as I was praying and reading and writing this this week. Almighty God, whose most dear Son went not up to joy, but first suffered pain and entered not into glory before he was crucified, mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace. The way of conversion is walking in the way of the cross. And the cross is painful. The cross is not the way of self-actualization and becoming your true authentic self. But oddly enough, when we follow the way of the cross, we may actually receive that as our gift of, as of God's grace. But Because we, we can only find our true authentic self hidden in Christ. And our true and authentic self, we will only discover that as a benefit of conversion, of converting our hearts, our vision of the world to Christ. And I, I couldn't find it. I read it somewhere, and I wish I could remember who said it. Maybe some of you listening, maybe some of you might know, but it says there's no point in converting to Christ if we don't convert our vision of the world with it. We can be comforted, brothers and sisters, that God truly loves us. God truly forgives us. God is truly with us. God truly accepts us and then calls us to give us up so the prayer of St. Paul can be the same as our prayer. As he said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And my vision, brothers and sisters, for our church and for church in general, I would say, is that the church is a place for our conversion, not a place where we come to be actualized, to become some kind of authentic self that we can find by, by whatever, I'm not going to go there. But, right, that's what the church is for. That's the whole point of this series. The church is, the church is not. And this has been very challenging for me, brothers and sisters, as I'm reading and preparing, and, and I hope that it's challenging you as well. Because the church, as we'll go on to see, if the church isn't a place for our conversion, then that means the church is not a social club. It means the church is not a loose-knit loose affiliation to people who think Jesus is really groovy, but aren't willing to believe that he's the incarnate Son of God, crucified and actually risen for our justification. 
that's kind of, I guess, a, a preview, <laughs> maybe, or a, or a sneak peek of uh, where this, uh, this series is going to keep going as we continue on. And so may the conversion of St. Paul be an example and a lesson to us. May his, his confrontation with Christ be our own confrontation with Christ. May his own transformation, his own repentance be our repentance. And may his obedience be our obedience because his obedience, as he'll realize as he goes through his life, his obedience rests on and was shown by the obedience of Christ who obeyed even unto death, the death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name that every knee on earth and heaven and on earth should bow because Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Thanks for joining us for today's podcast. This is Pastor Mike Lansman, and if you have any questions about anything you heard or would like some more information about our church, feel free to email me, malansman at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Zion's Stone UCC, or our website, zionstoneucc.com. We have a GoFundMe set up as well for some repairs that we need, gofundme.com slash UCC. As we continue to navigate the fallout from the coronavirus, I'd like to thank everyone for their continued generosity. It always amazes me how generous you've been. And I pray that the blessings of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would be with you and would keep you.